Well, good morning again. Please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. In contrast to last week, we'll only be looking at four verses, or I guess five technically. 13 through 17 as we close out chapter 2. He says, starting in verse 13, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through the sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this He called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Paul's point here is that because God has destined the Thessalonians for glory, they should stand firm and be comforted in the Lord. Because of their destination, they should stand firm and be comforted in the Lord. Attention that we'll see teased out here in the passage. It's important to remember what we've just come out of, the rebellion the man of lawlessness, and at the end of the last section, the grim fate of those who do not believe, or more particularly, believe in the wrong one, the man of lawlessness. They will be utterly destroyed. They will be the objects of the punishment depicted in chapter 1, suffering eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. So when this passage starts with a but, it is in contrast to what has come before it. And he says that we ought always to give thanks, which restates the first part of the body of the letter. Look at verse 3, chapter 1 there. We ought always to give thanks to God. Not only that, it restates what we see in the first letter. Verse 3, we give, excuse me, verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you, 1 Thessalonians 1, 2, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Apparently, Paul is all about thankfulness on behalf of other people and what God is doing in their life. In the 1 Thessalonians, the thankfulness is because um, well, it's, it's actually going to be for a similar reason, but the thankfulness in the first part of Second Thessalonians, I should say, is because of their growing faith. That's what he says. We ought always to give thanks to you, God, uh, to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for another is increasing. He returns to the idea of thanks here, but he gives a quite different reason. Let's always give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord. And you can't skip over that little part right there. 
beloved by the Lord. Sometimes those are throwaway verses, but coming out of the last 12 verses, a section, sometimes we just need to go back and remember that if you are in Christ, the God who spoke creation into being and who upholds your heartbeat now loves you. He doesn't just tolerate you. He's not up there apologizing to the angels in heaven that you're on his team. He loves you. Some of you didn't have fathers who loved you. He loves you. He loves you. He loves and he cares for you. And in the larger theological story, that's actually the basis for what comes next. The explicit reason for thanksgiving that is given here as opposed to the kind of thanksgiving that's given in chapter 1. Because God chose you as first fruits. We're so thankful. We ought always to give thanks because God chose you as the first fruits. Let me just say very briefly, because I do want to address it, but I don't want to spend hardly any time on it. There is a textual variant right here. Most of your copies of the scripture will have a superscript number down at the bottom. You'll have an alternate translation. Okay? And it will say, uh, depending on what depending on what translation you're reading, you will either have from the beginning or you will have what is in the ESV text, the first fruits for a, a lot of different reasons that I'm not even going to go into. But if you remember, our, one of our text critical principles when we're evaluating variants is to prefer the more difficult reading. Okay, because a copyist would be much more likely to correct to something that was easier to understand than more challenging to understand. So the more challenging one stands to, in many cases, be the most original. Both have very, very good attestation in the manuscript uh, witness. But in terms of the internal evidence, first fruits is the best translation. The first fruits of what? Well, in the context, it seems to be the first fruits of the believers there in Thessalonica. There is, a, there is now something new that has started that had not started. There is now a church there. There is the first generation, and his hope is that because God has chosen them as the first fruits, there will be generations and generations and generations of fruitfulness that come from them there in that region, there in that particular region. But more importantly, is that God chose them to be the first wave, if you will, of Christ's followers. And again, we cannot get away from the sovereignty of God in salvation as we just march through the biblical text. That God is sovereign in salvation. Listen to the similarity with 4 and 5 of the first letter. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, 4 and 5. For we know, brothers, loved by God, pretty similar so far, beloved, that He has chosen you. How do they know that? Because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. He says, you know how I know God has chosen you? Because you responded positively to the message. That's the evidence he gives for saying that God has chosen them. It's absolutely critical to remember that this divine operation of choosing isn't new. God is a chooser. He's a chooser. 
in many different ways. Remember all the way back in Genesis when the promises of God get this definite shape through a man named, at that time, Abram. Soon to be called Abraham. I went back and was just reading this account in preparation this week. It's just breathtaking. It's breathtaking how this is depicted. The end of Genesis 11 Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarah, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. That's what we get. End of chapter 11. Abram, a moon worshiper from Ur. Chapter 12, verse 1, with no further commentary. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I'll show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and I'll make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Just imagine the, the, imagine the conversation God could have had with Abram at that time if he wanted to. Just imagine the kind of conversation he could have had. Shows up. Abram, I am God. I created the heavens and the earth. Everything in them. Created a man and a woman. Told him to rule and subdue it. Enjoy everything. I gave him a simple prohibition. And uh, that went really badly. Okay? They did, frankly, what you would have done too. But, but it, it turned out that it was, a, it was a train wreck. Which is why you find yourself now worshiping the moon. As it turns out. Things got really bad after that. I wiped out everyone. I started over with the world's most righteous man, a guy named Noah. Gave him similar commission to bear fruit and multiply, spread my image all over this earth, and he ends up drunk and naked. Like the first couple, he has to be covered up. And then things are getting better from there. Instead of spreading out and filling the earth, they try to build this pathetic little tower up to heaven. I came down and looked at it, confused their language, scattered people across the face of the earth. And that brings us to this moment. So I'm done asking my creatures to do what they should do. Because I'm great, I'm going to make you great. He says. I am going to bless you and you are going to be a blessing to the nations. I've chosen you. Pack your stuff because I'm getting it done. This telling people to get it done obviously is not working, but I'm great and I will get it done for the sake of my great name and I'm going to do it through you and make you great. Pack up your stuff. You're going to love it. 
And notice there wasn't that moment where God was like, does that, is that, does that fit into your, your three-year three plan that you have? Does that fit into your, you got white space on the calendar to head out, leave everybody behind? Because Abram, we all know what he would have said. I, I, like, my, I like my little, we got something good going on here in Haran. No, no, this is good. He tells Abraham how he is going to use him and bless him. And then the next verse, Genesis 12, 4. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. Abram did not find God at an ancient Near Eastern temple revival. God chose him and he found him and the choosing wouldn't stop there. It wouldn't be Ishmael, it would be Isaac. It wouldn't be Esau, be Jacob, and from Jacob we get the twelve, we get the nation of Israel, the apple of God's eye, God's firstborn son that he chose out of all the nations to bless because God is a chooser. And so when we see that God is choosing on the pages of the New Testament, the wrong response is, well, that's an affront to my autonomous agency. The right response is, of course, just because God's a chooser. And if he wasn't, we'd be doing something equally silly like worshiping the moon. Because God calls people out of darkness because he gets it done. So as we zoom back into this text, after getting some of that perspective, Paul says how thankful he is that God has chosen them as the first fruits. But we didn't get to the end of the verse, the purpose though. The first fruits for what? And the answer is to be saved. Now, as the context makes clear and is consistent with usage in the rest of the New Testament, saved here refers to an entire salvation process. The entire salvation process. It is a, it is a large mistake to think that salvation, equate salvation with one punctiliar instantaneous moment like justification, which is part of that process, but salvation is a larger umbrella. I have been saved, I am being saved, I will be saved. That is why in Romans 13, 11, Paul can say that salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Salvation, larger category. And this is huge. This is huge. It's not a throwaway point here. It's huge because it doesn't say that God chose him to get in the front door. That's not it. If salvation is the whole thing from start to finish, God chose him for the end. Not just to get a, a good start. He chose them to experience the whole process, which he says happens instrumentally through two key elements here. Through spirit-wrought sanctification and belief in the truth. Because he chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So, how does one get from the very front end of individual salvation, I've repented and believed the gospel after God has called me, to the finish line. Like, how does that happen? You don't just go into a coma and wake up. What happens? Two categories. The Spirit who preserves but also transforms, which is why in verse 17 he suggests that we should establish and be established in every good work and word. Spirit who sanctifies and transforms and believing true things. Belief in the truth. Truth about God, the world, and ourselves. Truth about God, the world He's created, and ourselves. And we aren't saved on the foundation of these things. Rather, these are necessary factors, necessary elements in this overarching 
march to glory. March to glory. Which we see teased out in the next verse. He says, To this he called you, through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So after he has chosen them, or as an expression of it, he has called them by the preaching of the gospel. That's how they responded, sometimes in theology called the external call of God. You were called by the gospel, the preaching of the gospel, 1 Thessalonians 1. They responded to that because they had been so chosen in God's sovereignty. And if it wasn't in the Bible, I would think the next part's heresy. I would. He gives the purpose. Called you through the gospel purpose clause so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. If that wasn't in the Bible and someone said that, I would say, that's questionable. The glory of Jesus, not just a glorious place, as I mentioned last time, and I'm, I love to mention, glory is coming for you. You will be glorious. If you were here last time, we talked about one particular character as maybe a bit of an aside, a guy called Michael, more specifically the archangel Michael. This guy, folks, this is a bad dude. This guy, Michael, this angel, this heavenly being, this... I mean, the way he is described in the Old Testament, in the Second Temple Jewish literature, in the book of Revelation where he's fighting battles, this guy... I couldn't imagine seeing this. But guess what? He doesn't have the glory of Jesus. And Scripture says that you will judge angels. Can you imagine being in such a glorious position to judge Michael? I can't. I can't imagine it. We don't know the exact details of that. Paul mentions us judging angels. Maybe Michael has his own session of judgment that's parallel. I'm not sure. But the idea is we will have in a way that does not compromise but magnifies the glory of God, the glory of of Christ. It will be so unimaginably great that we we can really only say the words now, if I'm honest. We can really only say the words. I don't know that I can do much more than that besides compare to something like Michael. That's what the Thessalonians were chosen for, not just getting in the door. Not just getting in the door. The whole thing, the whole process, the end was in view from the beginning. Listen to John Stott express this beautifully, particularly coming out of the last section. He does it so well. He says, in a single sentence, the apostle's mind sweeps from the beginning to glory. There is no room in such a conviction for fears about Christian instability. Let the devil mount his fiercest attack on the feeblest saint. Let the Antichrist be revealed and the rebellion break out. Yet over against the instability of our circumstances and our characters, we set the eternal stability of the purpose of God. And so in light of this incredible calling, 
this unshakable sense of stability, the next verse might catch us by surprise. We might expect because of this, just relax. Take it easy. But here's the, we're going to return to the tension that we found in the main point. No, because your soul, your salvation is on lockdown and because God is the author of it from start to finish, what does He say? Verse 15, doesn't it say relax. He doesn't say take it easy. He says, stand firm. Verse 15, so then brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. This is far, far removed from a posture of passively floating down a river of salvation, floating down the river of grace. He's using words, stand firm, cling to. These are action words. This is effort words. He urges him to stand strong in light of the three categories of challenges that he's introduced in his letters here. Persecution, falsehood, and temptation. Stand strong. Cling to truth. Standing firm and holding to is how the endurance happens. It's part of it. The Spirit works, but He works to help us stand firm and hold to truth. He doesn't just Jedi mind trick us into a, a coma or delirium until we wake up in glory. There is endurance. There is effort. There is believing. There is standing. I want to make one comment here about the traditions and move on. And I'm only making it for the people who came out of a Catholic background. Generally, Paul uses traditions, the word traditions, to refer to teachings that don't originate with him, but that he is passing on. We have the tradition of what Jesus said at the Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians 11. Paul's formula in 1 Corinthians 15 about the resurrection that he passed on. He delivers. He delivered to them what, what he received. Um, self-sufficient labor, we're going to get another traditions reference in 2 Thessalonians 3. That is a tradition that he's passing on. Uh, Christian obedience in general, Romans 16, 17, and even the gospel itself, 1 Thessalonians 2, 13. Tradition, something that Paul received that he did not make up and that he is passing along. If you come out of a Catholic background particular, maybe even Eastern Orthodox, 2 Thessalonians 2.15 is like the proof text that is supposed to trump the sufficiency of Scripture. Why is that? Well, because look at what it says. It says the Catholic apologist, and certainly many of many, some of my Catholic friends in the past, says, well... It says that there are two authoritative sources of revelation, whether it's by spoken word or by the letter. First and second Thessalonians, the idea is God has chosen to preserve the deposit of truth in two parallel sources. One you can find in Scripture, but the other one you have to go to tradition. And who keeps the tradition? The church. Understood to mean, of course, the Roman Catholic Church. Not everything necessary for life and godliness and thinking about right, thinking about God rightly, is in the Scripture. There was the spoken word that didn't get written down; that got passed down orally. Now, maybe people wrote it down later, but the the, the main point is it's not in the Scripture. Let me just say, first of all, because I don't, I, I, we had a we had a 
a Doctrine of the Word series that is now immortalized as an example of what not to do in a common Sunday school class, uh, kind of a all-in Sunday school class, where I address this issue specifically. Uh, I don't have time to do that, but let me just say, I think that, that that's inconsistent with how Scripture asserts and understands itself, but that none of the explicit examples we see of tradition are more of anything that's just generically Christian. We see all these explicit examples. They're just generically Christian. Anyone who could generically claim to be a Christian could hold to all of these things. It seems to me that the burden of proof lies strongly on the person who thinks that Paul, who was invested in people's holiness, thinking rightly about God and the world, in all of his letters, left out material, including to churches he had never been to yet. Like Rome. That doesn't apply right here. He's been to Thessalonica. We've got a spoken word there that we didn't know. We don't know what he said. We talked about that last week. But what about Rome? He hadn't been there. He sends a letter before he goes. He, he knew he might not make it. Wouldn't it be odd? And if all the letters and all the sending, Paul left out critical information about how to think rightly about God and live in the world. Seems to me very bizarre for an apostle who was eager to see churches built up in the foundation of God's word and conform to the image uh, of, of Christ. So in summary then, because Paul says, because of what I've taught you, stand, because, stand firm. Hold to these things. Hold to the things that I've taught you. However they came to you. Our visit to you, these letters to you, stand firm and hold to them. And then he concludes with, a prayer that is, as we've seen in previous cases, can be understood as a bit of an exhortation. A bit of an exhortation. He says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work in word. Paul initially, I would say, shocks us by placing Jesus Christ before the Father in name order here. If you're a student of Paul, that almost never happens. But then he delights us specifically by declaring what we probably should already know, but he explicitly clarifies God as the Father thus completing the Trinitarian picture in the passage. I'm behind here, I see. He completes the Trinitarian picture given in the passage, now having explicitly mentioned the Holy Spirit, the Lord Jesus, and God the Father as the joint architects of salvation. It's a Trinitarian Salvation, a Trinitarian comfort here. And in light of God's calling us to Himself, He puts two things in the past tense. He loved us and He gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Because He loved us, He graciously gave us an eternal comfort understood as a good hope, particularly contrasted with the folks in the passage directly before who do not have such a hope. Not a, not, a good, not a good hope there. Very sad hope. Then as one theologian said, a good hope demands a good life. That's one to just keep right there. That's one of those little lines you can just hold up. Do I have a good hope? A good hope demands a good life. And we see exactly what was hinted at in verse 
17, where he completes the prayer by asking that this comfort and hope that we have actually comforts us and compels us to good words and good works as we work out our salvation salvation with fear and trembling before a holy God. He's saying, you have been given something, and he prays that what you have been given works. We'll talk about that in the application here. Because God has destined the Thessalonians for glory, they should not relax. Because they've been destined for glory, they should stand firm and be comforted in the Lord. So I want to talk about just two things as we look at this text and draw out some potential application. What's going on with this thing here? Hold on. Be there. Oh, not there. Okay, two points. Two points. What does it take to stand firm? What does it take to stand firm? If you ask 10 Christians in the 21st, in this cultural moment, what does it take? What does it look like to stand firm? How many answers do you think you'd get? <laughs> Maybe not 10, but at least 8. I want to make three brief points here as we heed Paul's command in the fight against persecution, falsehood, and temptation to stand firm. Just three points. What it takes to stand firm. Number one is make sure that we are distinguishing standing firm in the truth with always presenting ourselves as firm in disposition. You see, some people don't know how to stand firm without acting like their dad was with them right before they got worn out before for pinching their sister or something. They, 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 their version of standing firm has more to do with posture and rhetoric than disposition than a firm connection to the truth and a firm connection to holiness. Their version of standing firm is acting firmly, presenting firmly. It's in presentation. What I'm suggesting is that what we have to evaluate standing firm by and holding to by is a tight connection to the truth and a tight connection to holiness, and not in rhetoric, disposition, or posture, as if people who scream the loudest or the most frequently at culture are the ones standing the most firm while everyone else is just you know, not as courageous as they are. Standing firm has to be, standing firm is how firmly are my feet planted, not how loud I'm screaming while they're planted. Number one, distinguishing standing firm in the truth from present, always presenting yourself as firm in disposition. Number two, because standing firm has to be understood in terms of being anchored to the truth and holiness, we need to be about knowing truth and holiness. That seems like a foregone conclusion. If we're to understand being anchored to the truth as being anchored to uh, uh, excuse me, standing firm to be anchored to the truth and holiness, we need to know it ourselves to be anchored to it. And I have a deep suspicion that there are many Christians who, if they're honest, have their fingers 
more closely attuned to the pulse of culture than the pulse of Scripture. And they are very, very interested in playing the game according to the social optics of the cultural moment. I I, I don't want you to be aloof. I certainly don't want you to be intentionally insensitive or anything like that. But here's the thing. If you study the culture, which is constantly thrust before your face, news, social media, whatever, if you study the culture and just wave at your Bible, there will inescapably, one will have a larger influence on you. Inescapably. You're a student of a culture that screams and yells at you is always in your face. Your Bible takes effort to open and read and spend time in prayer. And so if we are not people who are intentional about pursuing the Lord in the Word, just the basics, the basics, pursuing the Lord in the Word, uh, pursuing the Lord in prayer, we will end up thinking that we are standing for Jesus, but we're getting discipled about how to stand firm by the culture and even what that looks like. Finally, because unbelieving culture hates God, key, unbelieving culture hates God, because there is no middle lane. There's not like you have the people who love Jesus, people who hate Jesus, and people who are like cool with Jesus, but don't really like him. Theologically, categorically, there's no like express lane or something, or passing on neutral ground. Because unbelieving culture hates God, we must have courage to stand for the whole truth, key, the whole truth, not just the parts of the truth that are palatable to the cultural moment. The whole truth, and expect to be called unloving and narrow-minded for doing so. I don't want you to be unloving. Please don't go be unloving. Don't be narrow-minded. But if you are standing firm in this culture, you will be called both. Unless you only selectively choose the things that you want to speak about that match better with the current cultural optics. And then when it moves on to different optics and a different cultural feel, maybe you can say some other things that are more comfortable too. But if you stand for the whole truth, why? Because Christian love is a holy, discerning love. It isn't the love of culture. We're using the same words with a different dictionary. Listen to the prayer that Paul prays for the Philippians. Listen to this very closely. Philippians 1. My prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. If you are standing firm from the truth, you will be called narrow-minded and unloving eventually because the truth is not peanut butter that can be spread around to accommodate every square inch of the cultural bread. Being faithful to the whole truth will result in you being called unloving and narrow-minded. So, you will need to have courage. And you will need to have a firm sense of identity and certainly not one that is determined by how the culture responds to your stand. Three points for what it looks like to stand firm. But what about gospel comfort here? The conclusion of the passage. Paul is very pastoral. We've seen oftentimes, be comforted. I'm I'm writing this to you so you will not be shaken. What about this comfort here? I was doing a lot of internal processing 
maybe it's the philosopher in me, but I was like, what does it mean really to be comforted? You ever like thought about some of these concepts over and over? I was asking myself, like, what's the difference between being comforted and encouraged? Okay, there are some differences. Like, what's the but Paul wants them to feel comfort. So how would you understand what comfort is besides giving synonyms for it? That's not, that's not understanding the core of something. Okay, Telling me that water is wet isn't the same thing as telling me it's H2O. That's the nature of it. What's the nature of comfort? I spent an embarrassingly long time thinking about that this week. But as, I, as it came out on the wash, here's what I would suggest to you this morning. That to be comforted in its core is to experience relief from something negative, real or imagined. To be comforted, and I don't mean to be made comfortable, like give me my comforter, physically comfortable. I mean have my soul comforted, my heart comforted. Is to experience a kind of relief from something negative, real or imagined. When I'm comforted, my, my soul takes a sigh of relief, you might say. That's what I would suggest that the core of comfort is. Being comforted. Some negative thing that I am somehow, at least at some measure, maybe not totally, relieved of. Now remember how Paul lays this out. Because he says that he, God has given us comfort, but then the second part of the prayer is that we would be comforted by it. Obviously, you can have one without the other. Someone can have the comfort of Christ because they're in Christ. But how do they look at their daily life where they don't see that? Why, how do you explain the huge gap between the comfort that they have in Christ and the profound lack of comfort they feel on a day to day basis? Because Paul's praying, I want you to feel the comfort that you actually have objectively in Jesus. So, how do you do that? How do you have so I got the comfort of Christ because I'm in Christ, but I don't I don't feel real comfort comforted if I'm honest. What are you supposed to say? I want to just sketch a very tiny answer, to just another as it turns out, not uh, intentionally, but another just a three point sketch for someone wrestling with this question: How do I how do I walk out of here and apply this? How do I apply this? How do I feel comfort that I already have, but I don't, I don't feel comfortable? Number one is this. Identify what you practically turn to for relief of your soul in the run of real life. When you are seeking comfort, what are the things that you actually turn to? Forget what you say in your theology and try to fast from that thing or those things at least for a season. That's my first, that's the first step. Identify, what do I turn to to my practical comforts? Could be social media, could be a drink, it could be an uh, uh, unhealthy uh, pursuit of exercise. It could be, it could be anything, it could be food, it could be whatever. What do you turn to for relief of your soul practically? Try to fast from those things for a while. Fast from them. But in conjunction with number two, with those coping mechanisms out of the way, with someone's help who is a mature believer, who knows Jesus well, explore how thinking rightly about God, the world, and yourself affects 
appropriate feelings about God, the world, and yourself. Our beliefs have an incredible effect on the way that we feel. Incredible effect on the way that we feel. If you believe the wrong things, you're going to feel the wrong way. Period. You believe the wrong things about God, your position before God, you believe the wrong things about the it's it will it will affect the way you feel inescapably. So, with the helping hand of someone who is mature and knows how to walk alongside you. And why do I say that? Here's the honest truth. Because if you could have if, if you're someone who is in this boat, if you could do it by yourself, you had already done it. You would have already done it if you could if you're in this situation. You can't. And that's okay because we weren't meant to go at it alone. So find someone who can help you think rightly, who can show you how right thinking about God, yourself, and the world leads to appropriate and right feelings about God, yourself, and the world. And then finally, number three, to do these things, you're going to have to have courage. Courage? What? Why? The answer is this, because you'll have to go places in your heart and perhaps places in your own life and perhaps places in your past that you are terrified to explore because of what you might find. Maybe it's, you say that's too, that's too painful of a thing to talk about. Maybe you just don't even know how to think about something, but you're terrified of the prospect of what it might imply about you. You're scared what it might find as you unpack this process, thinking rightly about yourself, God, and the world. If you do this the right way, it will, in many cases, be a terrifying prospect. One much easier to simply ignore and move on. And so you have to have courage. At the end of the day, you must have some courage in order to do this well. The question is, will you do it? The question is, will you do it? Will you go into the darkest parts of your soul, the darkest parts of your life? And let the Lord renew those and not just smuggle those away on Sunday morning or for the rest of your life for that matter. And let the gospel do a redeeming work as you think and feel rightly about those things. I think this is a great template for getting started feeling the comfort that you objectively already have in Jesus. Stand firm. Be sanctified. Be comforted. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are the God of comfort. That you even comfort us in our affliction so that we can comfort others. We pray, Lord, that you would help us experience that comfort. Not just know it in the air, but as Paul practically and pastorally wanted the Thessalonians to not be shaken, to not be disturbed. Lord, would we take the promises that we've heard this morning? Would you help apply to our, our hearts with the help of wise friends and counselors in a way that we feel the comfort that we have in Jesus Lord, thank you for calling us out of darkness without which we would be staring at the moon or something silly like Abraham. Thank you for being a God who calls and comes through. In Jesus' name.